Well, friends, please stand now for the reading of God's word. This morning, we have the privilege of continuing our series through the prophetic ministries and lives of Elijah and Elisha. This morning, we're focused more on the life and ministry of Elisha and his role in Israel and Judah and beyond. This morning, we find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, he was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went, and he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, quote, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Eden. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Well, is there no prophet of the Lord here? through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Eden went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now, bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. 
For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, so that you shall not drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. Now this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. You shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water, ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, not long ago, I read about a couple that got very, very, very lost on a hike, what seemed to be a very modest day hike at Big Bend National Park. Now, those of you from our church know that our family loves Big Bend, and we like a good hike, so this article caught my attention, did not want to make the same mistakes as this couple. Their names are Kathy and Rick McFarland. They loved the West Rim of Big Bend National Park. They wanted to take a five-mile round-trip day hike, leave in the morning, back in the afternoon, a wonderful day in a gorgeous place. At 10.15 a.m., they grabbed two canteens, eight bottles of water, some bananas, and other provisions filled their fanny packs, and they were off for the day. Now, at 1.30 p.m., they realized the hike was taking a little longer than expected. The temperature was hotter than anticipated, and when 8 p.m. rolled around and they had no idea where they were and the surroundings were not familiar, it set in that they were spending the night in the mountainous desert of the West Rim of Big Bend National Park. We know that temperatures during the day can exceed 100. Well, what happens in the desert at night? The temperature plummets. They had shorts and t-shirts, and that was it. Day two. Sadly, more of the same. Incredibly difficult, only they had run out of food and water 12 hours before. They wandered around in the near 100-degree heat. Nothing seemed familiar again. They were going to have to spend a second night on the western rim of Big Bend National Park. Midday on day three of being lost with no provisions, they ascended a ridge and Rick thought he could see a way back to the direction of the car. Now, I'm not sure this was the wisest thing in the world, but Kathy was completely incapable of making this kind of hike, and so he leaves Kathy there and he goes back for help. Day four. Kathy is all by herself, and she felt like the end was near. These are her words. On day four, my physical condition, all alone, I began to deteriorate. 
Fluid actually leaked from my body as my kidneys, heart, liver, and lungs suffered from the varying degrees of extreme heat and cold, as well as from exertion and severe dehydration, organ by organ, my body was shutting down, hallucinations were starting to set in at the end of day four. Praise God, and by his grace, she was found alive on day five, just in the nick of time. Rick had found help, and it had taken search and rescue two days to find her. They were in such a remote place. Quote, she said, doctors told me I was only a few hours from death when the searchers found me. I was in acute renal failure. My heart Lungs and liver were all damaged. My temperature fluctuated wildly. Cactus spines protruded from all over my body. Friends, getting turned around in the desert can be deadly. This is why my idea of camping is opening up the window at night. <laughs> getting turned around in the desert can be deadly, not just for individuals. It can be deadly for armies, as we're seeing in our text today. You get lost in the desert for just a few days. If you're not provisioned and supplied, if you haven't made the necessary plans, your life could be at great risk. That's the context of our passage today. These three armies were in a great deal of trouble. Let's go to verse 1. I love passages like this. Because Lord willing, by the end of this passage, the Bible is going to come alive in new ways. What, what could seem like too many details, too much tedious history, is actually fascinating and absolutely relates to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 1. In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, what a name, king of Judah... Jehoram, now you're just going to, you know, we're going to have to stop along the way and make sure we have these names right. Jehoshaphat, he's the king of Judah. We'll look at a map momentarily. Jehoram, he's the king in Israel, the northern kingdom. Jehoram reigned for 12 years in Israel. The capital was Samaria. Now skip to verse 4. Here's the immediate context and the reason for writing. Now Misha... King of Moab was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. Now, just briefly, it's important to understand the people to whom this book was written. Okay? To whom was 2 Kings primarily intended? The book of 2 Kings is primarily intended for the people of God after they've been in captivity and they're being restored back to the land so that they would know how to live again in the land that God had given them. So the people who would be reading this were people maybe at the tail end of the exile and they were being instructed through stories like this what mistakes to avoid and what God expected of them when they got back to the land. So keep that in mind. Okay, so over a hundred years before the events of our passage, David, 
the greatest king in Israel's history, had expanded the borders of his nation to unprecedented places. One nation that he subjected to particular tribute was the nation of Moab. And since the time of David, Moab had been under control of the king of Israel for many years. Moab was what we call like a vassal state. So when Israel, through David, defeated Moab, into the future, they would subject them to yearly taxes. You can see what that was in context. 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams were due every year to the king of Israel. Look with me at verse 5. But when Ahab of Ahab and Jezebel infamy, if you remember, in terms on the scale of heinousness, Ahab and Jezebel were as bad as it could get. When Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. And so Misha, that's another name, little quiz later, Misha, that's a little easier, you know, to pronounce. He's the king of Moab. He surveys the scene. Ahab is dead. Really, the author doesn't tell you another son of Ahab has died. He licks his finger, puts it to the wind, discerns now's a good time to declare our own independence. We are out of the tribute business. And so Misha, king of Moab, declares, writes his own declaration of independence. He's out. Of course, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, did not like that. That was a massive amount of tax revenue lost. So he wanted to conquer them back and resubjugate him. Okay, let's look at our handy-dandy map, okay? You've got a color map today. The map is very important. The map brings it alive. It helps you understand the history. Okay, look at your map. The Dead Sea is our orientation point in the middle of the map. So you have, really, four major players, four kings, four nations of relevance here. Okay, if you look to the north and west of the Dead Sea, you get Israel. I know this is so confusing. It's confusing to preachers. But at this time, the people of God are divided into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They're all God's people, but they're now separated into two nations. So you see in the green, Israel to the north, uh, uh, west of the Dead Sea. And then you see Judah to the direct west of the Dead Sea, to the left, okay? Now, look to your right, to the southeast of the Dead Sea, there's Moab. They're the ones that rebelled against Israel. Then you look to the south of Moab, and what country is that? Edom. Okay, so in terms of relevance, here's what's happening. If you look at your map, you'll see that Israel, their southern border, lines up with Moab's northern border. That would be the place where Moab would expect an invasion, okay? Because they share a border with Israel. They have just declared their independence. They would have fortified that border. That's where Israel would come from. Jehoram, the king of Israel, knows this. So what does he do? If you look at your map, what he wants to do is he wants to surprise Moab 
from coming in from the south, which would have been unanticipated and foolish, okay? Because that would have been a very long journey for the Israelites. Look at Samaria. That's like the capital of the northern kingdom. If you orient yourself, top left of the map, you see Samaria. That's where the northern kingdom, Jehoram's troops would start. They ask, they're going to ask for an alliance with Judah because they need to cut through Judah. They have an alliance with Edom as well. They're going to want to cut through Edom. Everybody, please look at the map. They're going to cut through Edom. That would be unanticipated because Edom, which is now southern Jordan today, incredibly arid and mountainous. The last place you would want to take three armies, which is why there was some bit of strategery involved in it, okay? To go through the mountains of Edom, Edom would be a tough task. Are we oriented? That's what's going on here. Those four nations, Jehoram, the king in Israel, wants to cut south through Judah, go east through Edom, and then go north and surprise Edom, uh, surprise Moab from the south. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. So King Jehoram, he's the king of Israel, marched out of Samaria at that time, mustered all of Israel. He went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. They enjoyed a good relationship at this time. Quote, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, said, I will go. He's a very friendly guy, easygoing guy, happy to help you. I will go. And in this very ancient Middle Eastern way, he says, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. I'm all in. I'm going to help you out. Then he said, this is Jehoshaphat, he says, well, which way should we go? By which way should we march? Jehoram. The king of Israel answered, well, by the way of the wilderness of Eden, Edom, the wilderness of Edom, that there was quite a reputation, the wilderness of Edom, very uh, intimidating terrain to try to, to cross. Verse nine, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, that's a nice way of saying what? They had gotten totally lost in the midst of the wilderness of Edom. They had absolutely no idea where they had been. You can see it's really not that far once you get there, but because of the mountains and the gorges and the valleys and, and it only rains seven inches an entire year in this area, they had gotten totally turned around. They had run out of water. Their situation was desperate. End of verse 9. They had made a circuitous march, hopelessly lost, seven days, no water for the army or the animals that followed them. So their situation was totally desperate. Okay? Let's look at how the king of Israel, Jehoram responds. The king of Israel is supposed to be, he's not a priest, but he's supposed to be kind of the covenant leader of, of his people. Look at how he responds. What does he do? He immediately goes into blame shifting mode, okay? 
blames it on God's sovereignty. He's very pious now, okay? Verse 10, then the king of Israel said, you can imagine he's standing there in front of the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they're wondering, how did we let this guy convince us to do this? How did we get in this situation? Jehoram's like, alas, this is the will of God, it seems, to hand us into the hand of Moab, okay? Reminds me back in the day when I did college ministry. And this is going to be a, a warning and encouragement to those single among us. When the students in my ministry of RUF, let's say they were dating somebody and the relationship had gained some momentum, and let's say they just weren't feeling it anymore, okay? They just weren't into that other person anymore, okay? Rather than just saying, I'm just not that into you anymore. I really like Cindy instead of you, Janet, you know? I want to break up. What do they say? You know, Janet, I feel like the Lord is leading us apart. I feel like <laughs> I've prayed about it a lot. You know, that was like the spiritual force field grants you perfect immunity. You can't be questioned if you say, well, the Lord would have us with someone else. Don't do that. Just show the courage to say, you know, I'm just not, you know, I'm interested in someone else or maybe just, just not you. I'm sorry. Maybe you could say it grac more gracious than that, but don't, don't hide behind the Lord in pious language. That's what Jehoram is doing. He is immunizing himself from critique or criticism, he's spiritualizing it, and he is not a spiritual man, as we will see. Thankfully, though, there was an adult in the room. Thankfully, there was a godly adult or king in the room that the Lord had provided. Look with me at verse 11. What, what did not occur to Jehoram certainly did occur to Jehoshaphat when things got difficult. Verse 11. And Jehoshaphat, again, he's the king of Judah, he said, well, is there no prophet of the Lord here? They were all kind of under the leadership of Jehoram. And so they're having this council, and Jehoshaphat is perplexed, like, what are we doing? Is there not a prophet of the living God from whom we can get wisdom and understanding? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha the son of Shaphat, is here. He's the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Like this is Elijah's confirmed prophetic successor. He's here. Jehoshaphat, verse 12, has heard of him. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. I've heard of this guy and the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Eden Edom went down to him. It doesn't tell us. I can only imagine Jehoram's response when he hears of all the prophets that are available, who's been identified? Elisha. You know, there was a lot of history between the families of Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah and then Elisha. You know, Elisha would have been more um, adversarial toward Jehoram than even Elijah. Elisha would have been more adversarial. Sometimes you're more protective of your mentor. Like a parent that's been attacked, if a loved one gets attacked, 
you know, typically you can be more protective of them. And Elisha's mentor, Elijah, had been hunted ruthlessly by Ahab and Jezebel. There was no love lost between Elijah, Elisha, and the house of Ahab. And so I can just imagine Jehoram, when he hears Elisha's name, he's like, this is not going to be good. Okay, let's see what happens. Verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, you know, and if you didn't know this history, you would think that Elisha is being kind of rude, but he's not. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But to the king of Israel, I'm sorry, but the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of mob. He's basically saying, well, my parents may have done some bad things, and yes, we may have made some bad choices, but this time it's not my fault. Don't blame me. I'm not responsible for this, which was the wrong answer to give. Verse 14, Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. So understand, he is now taking an oath, Elisha. This is going to be very important. Remember this. He's taking an oath as Yahweh of hosts, as God Almighty lives before whom I stand. Were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. If it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even look in your direction. I would not waste a moment of my time with you. But for the sake of Jehoshaphat, I will. Question for you. Whereas he had no regard for Jehoram, the king of Israel, he had great, great respect and regard for the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat. What would motivate Elisha to intercede on behalf of Jehoshaphat? What was different about Jehoshaphat than Jehoram? There's only one salient difference. Do you know it? You know your Old Testament? Who was Jehoshaphat? He was the son of David. He sat on David's throne. He ruled and reigned in Jerusalem. And for his sake, Elisha would intercede. Look at verse 15. But bring me, but now bring me a musician. And when the mus musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he starts to prophesy. And he said, thus says the Lord. This is the prophetic formula. The Lord says, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain. You're not going to see where this event comes from. But that stream bed over there, it's going to be filled with water so that you shall drink you, your livestock, and your animals. So just take a break. I don't know how many of you maybe on YouTube or maybe a National Geographic show have ever seen these wadis, W-A-D-I, these, these incredibly dry stream beds over in the Middle East. They're, they're everywhere. Incredibly high, dry, mountainous region. There are these dry stream beds that are just everywhere. And when rains come in, 
You know, these flash floods can proceed and just seemingly come out of nowhere and can change this dry and arid landscape almost instantaneously into just pools of water, an amazing, beautiful oasis. Now, this area only rains seven times, seven inches a year. And so for that to happen right now would be highly unlikely. So that's what's, that's what's going to happen here is the, these little wadis, these dry stream beds that they're stuck in, are all of a sudden water's going to pour in. Okay? Look at verse 18. I love Elisha. And, and, and he's, he's, you know, he's prophesying. And the Lord says, because that would seem to be amazing, for enough water to come in and feed three armies and their animals at the exact time they needed it, okay? And what the Lord is saying is, that's a light thing. That's small potatoes. That's nothing. So that you know that there's a God in Israel, I'm going to do something even more. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, verse 19, and you shall attack every fortified city, every choice city, fell every good tree, stop up all the springs of water, ruin every good piece of land. This is, this is kind of prophetic hyperbole. You know, we're going to bring the land back under our control. We're going to totally conquer it. Verse 20, the next morning, about the time of the offering of the sacrifice. You think that's a coincidence? About the time of the morning sacrifice, this amazing miracle happens. Behold, water came from the direction of Edom, one of the driest areas of the known world. That's where the water is going to come from. Till the country was what? What's, what's the writer's description? Till the country was what? Filled with water everywhere. What a miraculous provision of God. What did Elisha say? You're not going to see any wind or rain. You're not going to see what happened maybe miles and miles away. Likely in the providence of God, this gives me goosebumps. It's possible that God had answered this prayer before Elisha even interceded. The time it would have taken for the rain on this distant mountaintop to fill that valley at the time of the morning sacrifice, astounding. Just as a reader, it's, it's amazing the providence and sovereignty of God. Perhaps you've seen him work in your life like this, where amazing things are happening and then you look back at what the Lord had been doing for, for perhaps years in the past to set the stage for whatever. Our God is at work. He's always working. Our prayers unleash his predetermined, pre-allocated blessings. But he calls us to pray as the means to unleash his wonderful blessings. Like I said, the Lord had probably made it rain voluminously so far away they couldn't see it, and now the waters flowed. A miraculous provision. But that's just the first miracle. As if that's just a light thing, God's going to do something more. God's going to give the Moabites into their hand. Look at panel five. We're going to land the plane here very soon. Panel five, this is the end of the story. How does God, 
hand the Moabites into the hand of these three armies. These three, these three armies went from basically dying of thirst to now complete victory. How does this happen? Well, the Lord fills the land with water. They're refreshed. It happens at the time of sacrifice. Now the scene changes to the Moabites. Their scouts had told them what was going on. These three armies are close. Verse 21, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest, this was a desperate situation, they were called and they were drawn up at the border. Now, this is interesting, verse 22. And when they rose, when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the waters that had poured in from Edom, the water opposite them, it seemed red as blood. So much so that they thought it was the blood of these armies. Verse 23, they said, this is the blood. This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. And so without any care or concern, they walked right into an ambush. So sometimes modern readers look at this, and this seems a little far-fetched. Like these, these Moabite, you know, this army, they're not foolish. You would think they would be able to tell the difference between blood and maybe if the hue of the water was different just this week. If you even Google, um, like rivers, like red rivers, red bodies of water near the Dead Sea, they showed this tweet. It wasn't from a Christian. It was just, there was this pool of water near the Dead Sea that due to iron oxide, it looked exactly like blood. Very current picture, maybe in the last two years. And the amazing providence of God. The water came at just the right time, at the time of sacrifice, to sacrifice the Lord's people. Had the tinge of blood to it. So much so that the Moabites, without any concern, rushed in to three awaiting armies who completely decimated them. That's incredible. That's what you call a complete and stunning reversal. Remember when the water came in at the time of sacrifice? Remember what it looked like? It looked like blood. We're going to end with this. And this is, hopefully this will bring the whole thing together and is amazing. There is a very enigmatic ending to this passage. One of the most curious in the entire Old Testament. Okay, go to the end. Verse 26. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through. This was a last-ditch effort to survive and retreat, to go back to Moab with just a sense of their army intact. They're being totally devastated. He took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Nothing was working. Notice what the king of Moab does. This is, this is barbaric, and this is horrible beyond description. This was a practice that was forbidden by the Old Testament. Child sacrifice was forbidden by the Old Testament. It was viewed as the height of blasphemy to sacrifice a child. Look what he does. 
We don't know how old his son was. The king of Moab was so desperate, verse 27, he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. In sight of the entire army of Moab, he takes the crown prince and publicly sacrifices him and offers him as a burnt offering on the wall. Notice what happens next. This is why this is so confusing to scholars and theologians. And there came, in response to this meaning, there came great wrath against Israel. Now that doesn't seem to make sense. Why would wrath come against Israel when it was the king of Moab who had offered this blasphemous sacrifice? Notice what happens. There came a great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew Israel from him and returned to their own land. So Israel and these three armies, they retreat. What happened? Long story short, I'm convinced now that what happened is this. You can imagine this, is a very, this would be a very dark Braveheart scene, if you will. But the king of Moab makes a last-ditch effort he sacrifices the crown prince, which when Braveheart gives his speech, it enlivens and motivates the army of Moab to the degree that they could effect a retreat. Like, like it galvanized them. They came with renewed strength and vigor. The victory was basically already over. And so Israel, Edom, and Judah, uh, and Judah went home. So here's the connection to all this. If this barbaric sacrifice, where this child was offered up, I'm sure, not in any kind of voluntary sense, if the soldiers of Moab could be motivated by this kind of barbarism, how should the voluntary, beautiful, amazing, willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ motivate us to serve him and love him and lay down our lives for him. When did the waters come at the time of sacrifice? What was it, in a sense, that added another victory? The water that seemed like blood. This horrible, terrible sacrifice that enlivened the Moabites. Friends, when did Jesus, when did Jesus make a compact with the Father to save you and me. He made it willingly before time began. The Psalms say that Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, came to the Father and said, here I am, send me. A body you have prepared for me. If that wicked, vicious sacrifice could galvanize the Moabites. How much more, friends? The voluntary, lovely, beautiful, all-atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, should motivate us. Going, going back to the beginning, we'll end with this. Jehoram, he instituted some small superficial reforms, but it was a halfway thing. His heart wasn't changed, only the atoning sacrifice of Jesus applied by the Holy Spirit can make our hearts new.
and our hearts changed and our hearts full of love, willing to serve him in any situation. Beloved, the entire Bible, doesn't matter where you are, is pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this is an amazing example of that very thing. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, I know this is a lot. This is a lot for me. This is a lot for our people. Father, help us to understand this text through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the book of Hebrews, which helps us to understand the significance of your all-encompassing, substitutionary, atoning sacrifice of Jesus. As the Son of Man is lifted up high and holy on that cross, Holy Spirit of the living God, change our hearts to love him and long to live for him and serve him We ever we find ourselves. We pray in his matchless name. Amen.